Holy and loving God, write a message on our hearts. Bless us, direct us, and send us out living letters of the word. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. A handful of years ago, someone screamed at me in the grocery store. I was meandering through the produce trying to find a decent avocado when all of a sudden, soaring above the din of my fellow shoppers, I was assaulted by this Ben! It was a young woman whose wedding I had the honor of being part of several months before. And we chatted for a while and she talked about how happy she and her husband were, which didn't surprise me, they are a lovely couple. And she showed me pictures of their honeymoon on their phone and we had a nice visit. And after that we went on our separate ways. But as I wandered the aisles and checking items off my list, I remembered that day and their wedding. And as my mind went over the liturgy, I was reminded of their reading from the Old Testament, the same reading we read this morning, that beautiful love poem from the Song of Solomon. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past and the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. And this is not an uncommon reading for a wedding. In fact, my cousin read that same reading at Ellen and I's wedding. But those lyrical lines, while beautiful, always make me laugh a little bit. They are seemingly the distillation of every young couple's exuberant and pure love. And I don't mean to sound cynical, and I hope and pray that every couple's heart is filled with that kind of bounteous love for all the days of their marriage. It's like holding a, a flower blossom in your hands, lovely, fragile, and ephemeral. But then comes that moment, that moment when the baby has woken up for the fifth time that night, that moment when the dog has vomited on the floor, <laughs> that moment when you're trying to get something out of the attic and you think you are stepping on solid ground, but instead you put your foot through the ceiling. Not that that's happened to me, I'm just thinking of examples off the top of my head. And if one said to the other in that moment, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. I would imagine the other one would say, Are you kidding me? But love does not end in that moment. I tell aghast couples in premarital counseling. It is an opportunity for growth, for maturity, for evolution, and the marriage will be stronger for it. And a life with God is not dissimilar. Throughout our lives, we are blessed, I pray, with mountaintop moments. Moments, as the Celtics would say, that are thin places. When God feels so close, so palpable, and we are filled with the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And in those moments, our faith is so strong that we feel we could move mountains. But if we are honest, there are other moments. Moments when we open our paper and read nothing but bad news. Moments when a beautiful friend 
receives an undeserved misfortune, or just when the busyness of life brings us to exhaustion, and God seems to be nowhere. I wonder if those Pharisees and scribes who encountered Jesus on that day, I wonder if they lost their connection with God. Perhaps in younger days, God was their constant companion. But now, more world-weary, more comfortable, more suspicious, they worry more about washing hands than the love of God. And Jesus rightly convicts them when he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. And later in this morning's gospel, Jesus offers that lovely list of evils that can defile a person. Jesus must have been a lot of fun at cocktail parties. However, upon reading this list this week, I was glad to see that my sin of choice was not listed, gluttony. And perhaps that means I get a free pass, but I doubt it. And so being a glutton and meditating on mature relationships this week, whether they be with a spouse or with God, I was reminded of food and specifically one of my favorite dishes, gumbo. Now, I am a novice when it comes to gumbo. I do not come from gumbo country, and I do not come from gumbo people. I have enjoyed a variety of regional stews from Kentucky's, Brunswick, Kentucky's Burgoo, North Carolina's Brunswick, or South Carolina's Frogmore. But when you get down here, it's gumbo. And good gumbo does not come easy. It takes time and care and dedication. And for me, and perhaps this is blasphemy, the heart of a good gumbo isn't the shrimp or the sausage or the duck or the okra. It is the roux. Gumbo starts with a roux. That simple mixture of fat and flour slowly simmered over low heat. And one cannot rush a roux. It must be constantly stirred and the temperature monitored to make sure that nothing burns. My sister-in-law, who grew up in Baton Rouge and introduced me to truly spectacular gumbo, employs an adage that roux is like the Mississippi River. It begins at this banal beige, like the river's headwaters up in Minnesota. But with time and patience, the rue, like the river, moves south and darkens and deepens, and no rue is finished until it reaches New Orleans. And then, and only then, when the rue is that enchanting chocolate brown color, can one begin to assemble the other components. In other words, gumbo takes discipline. And like gumbo, relationship takes discipline. But discipline 
doesn't have the best reputation these days. We hear discipline and perceive some kind of restriction or oppression, but a deliberate, methodical, patient discipline can also achieve great things. And when applied to a relationship, especially a relationship with God, discipline can not only achieve, but discipline changes us for the better. These Pharisees and scribes did not exercise discipline. They just went through the motions. They did not act, they did not act with humility, placing God before themselves. Instead, they placed themselves in the place of God and sought the glory for themselves. And out of such folly, evil can infect the heart. But if we adopt a discipline when approaching God, a discipline of prayer, a discipline of service, a discipline of listening, a discipline of thanksgiving, and we truly put God at the center of that discipline, then our acts cease to be mere emotions, but reflections of our own holiness. We are meant to be holy. We were made to be holy. And God knew of our holiness before the creation of the universe. But that holiness requires tending. That holiness requires purpose. That holiness requires discipline. Or as James writes in today's epistle, be doers of the word and not merely hearers. This past week, I heard former Mississippi Governor Haley Barber speak about his experiences leading the state through the calamity that was Hurricane Katrina. And he told a beautiful story about an older gentleman who volunteered with the recovery efforts in the days and weeks following the storm. The man is Jewish and his son is a rabbi. And after a few weeks, the Jewish high holy days were approaching and this man called his son and asked if he should come home to mark the holidays. And his rabbi son replied, Dad, I believe you're closer to God in Mississippi. A life with God is not easy. I wish it was. I wish a life of God could be arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Perhaps in the next life. But here and now, if we work, if we build, if we tend, if we allow our souls to grow and our gifts to be utilized, then we will satiate the greatest hunger of the human soul, the knowledge and the love of God. Amen.